Good evening. My name is Eileen, and I'm an alcoholic. And in keeping with your tradition here in Omaha, I will tell you that uh, because of the grace of God, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, an extraordinary sponsorship, I've been sober since March 3rd of 1975. So if you're new in this room, take a good look. I'm your hope. (laughs) If you're young in this room, take a good look. I'm your hope. (laughs) All righty. I want to thank the committee. I want to thank my good friends Dick and Peggy uh, for asking me to come here. Um, I saw Dick and Peggy down in the Dominican Republic. I was having a little crisis. Uh, American Airlines forgot to put my suitcase on the plane in uh, Los Angeles, so I arrived in Miami with no suitcase. It was 5 o'clock in the morning. I had to get on the charter to go to the Dominican Republic. And let me just say this. I have a friend named Patty O, who some of you might know. She also lives in California. We want to write our own chapter to the uh, fourth edition of the bid book. We want to call it To the Cranky. So uh, you can just imagine how crabby I was in the Dominican Republic. Um, I had to make Peggy my sponsor because I was there for a whole day with no suitcase. Now, it's not like, well, I'm Jewish, just for starters. And um, my mother has an expression when you go on a trip, and the expression is, it's not a wilderness. Which, um, which lends credence to the idea that, as Jews, we never camped on our vacations, you know, because obviously that would have been a wilderness. And, uh, you know, my idea of the wilderness is a Motel 6 with a black and white TV. Um, notwithstanding, I did go to live on a commune in Washington State in 1970 in a moment of complete and total insanity. But anyway... Um, of course, I was in a decade-long moment of insanity when I, uh, when I went to do that. But, uh, but anyway, so I'm down in the Dominican Republic. We're at Club Med. It's not like they have a Dillard's, you know, where you can go get some underwear. They have, they have nothing but the Club Med boutique, which sells nothing but Club Med crap, you know. And, uh, you know, and so there we are. And I'm there for like a whole day. I have no program. I have no life. I want to go back to Los Angeles. I hate the Dominican Republic. And then my suitcase arrived. It was like total change. I was then the happiest woman in the Dominican Republic (laughs) with the possible exception of Mrs. Sammy Sosa, you know, and so... And Dick and Peggy asked me to come here to talk anyway. <laughs> I'm one of those alcoholics, what you see is what you get. And, uh, you know, and I'm so grateful for that. I, I do want to talk about something that's going on right now just to get it out of the way, because I've always found that if I talk about what's going on, it cuts it in half. And um, I really want to talk about this. I, uh, I checked my messages at home today, and I had a mammogram last Tuesday, and uh, they found something, and uh, they don't know what it is. I don't know what it is either, um, but, uh, you know, this weekend is going to be an exercise in living in the now for me, because what they found on the film could be cancer, it could be a cyst, it could be a fibroid, it could be anything. And I have to tell you that I immediately went to the idea that I have to live in the now, because there's nothing I can do till I get back to Los Angeles. Now... The thing that concerned me the most, and I have to tell you, I'm sort of pleased about this. The thing that concerned me the most is if it does turn out to be cancer, and believe me, this is, you know, I'm I'm just hypothetically speaking here. My dad had cancer last year. My sister-in-law had cancer the year before. In between, my brother got hit by a car. And what I really thought about was, God, I hope it's not cancer, because I don't know if my parents could take it. You know? I could take it, I think, but I don't know if they could. And uh, so, you know, that's where I immediately went. And I have to tell you, that's only the grace of God in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, because before I got here, I never would have thought about how it affected them or anybody else. It would have been all about me and my movie and my drama. And you know what? It's not always my movie. 
But I wanted to get that out of the way. I wanted to tell you that I'm a little preoccupied with that, and who wouldn't be? Um, you know, and, uh, and I really don't want to spend my whole weekend thinking about what could be wrong with my right breast, okay? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I'm praying to disassociate from my right breast. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's my prayer. <laughs> okay, I'm supposed to tell you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. And uh, you know what I'm like now. And... <laughs> I'm disassociating. Anyway, um, I was born, obviously. <laughs> uh, I'm a Jew from Idaho. <laughs> I, uh, and to tell you the truth, when my parents moved there from the Bronx, everybody thought they had moved to Iowa. <laughs> for you Iowans, and they had to explain, no, it's potatoes, not corn, and uh, anyway, um, my parents are from the Bronx, and they ended up in Idaho through the military, actually, you know, uh, military intelligence is an oxymoron, you know, and my father, I mean, it wasn't bad enough that he'd been in Guadalcanal with the Marine Corps, but he came back, and they put him on recruiting duty, and they said, where do you have a place to live? He said, New York City, so they sent him to Portland, Oregon. Then they sent him to Butte, Montana, and then they sent him to Boise. My dad had been a minor league baseball player, a semi-pro baseball player, so he became a minor league baseball announcer and disc jockey in Boise. And we lived there for ten, they lived there for 10 years. My brother and I were both born there. And when I was four years old, we moved to Southern California. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. That's where Valley girls come from. But fortunately for you, I left before girls started talking like that. And uh, anyway, um, I was the star of my grammar school. I was the undisputed star of my grammar school. I'm one of those people who, you know, achieved greatness early. I kind of peaked at 11 and a half, and it was downhill from there. <laughs> but I was, in fact, the star of my grammar school. I mean, I was the head of everything, the teacher's pet, the principal's pet, the nurse's pet, the head of the safeties, the student council. I was uh, the mistress of ceremonies at my grade school graduation where I got to do square dance calls and phonetic Portuguese, you know, something <laughs> that I'm sure none of you got to do. And uh, anyway, um, you know, and I was the kind of kid who, you know, all the other kids loved to hate. I was kind of a kiss-ass. And uh, anyway, um, I was also a really weird kid. Um, I, I mean, I'm sort of a weird adult, so you can tell that I started out kind of as a weird kid. And uh, Anyway, I was a very weird kid, and I was a very neurotic kid, and I was a very self-obsessed kid, and I was very self-involved and self-conscious, and, you know, and I was very interested in how I was impacting the planet. This was very important to me, and, uh, you know, what all of you thought about me, and on and on and on and on. And uh, anyway, um, I've come up with an analogy, and this is my own um, personal material. I haven't stolen this from anybody else in AA. I came to this one day. Um, I never had any pets growing up, which is not a sob story. Don't get out the violins. I don't really care that I never had any pets growing up, but I, I really never had an opportunity to watch the behavior of domestic animals. And uh, anyway, I work for a man. I'm a personal assistant in the entertainment industry, which is a great job for an alcoholic because I don't get to run my own life, but I do get to run his. And uh, <laughs> anyway, so it's like, you know, me casa, su casa, me pets, your pets, you know. And so I work in his house, and there's pets. There's a dog and there's two cats. Uh, the dog's name is Roger. He's a yellow Labrador retriever. And the, pet, and the cats are Bub and Lucille, and they're ordinary. And uh, anyway, they're none too happy about Roger. They were there first. They do things like, you know, they walk by him while he's just sleeping quietly on his bed and hiss at him on general principle, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, Anyway, um, I, I don't know how many of you have experience with Labradors or any other kind of retriever dogs. Retrievers are very interested in approval, okay? They really want to know how they're doing, you know? And uh, anyway, so I picture, you know, they're kind of odie odie odies, you know? And so I sort of picture Roger, you know, the way that Roger talks, if Roger could talk, of course, is that, because these are the kind of things I spend my day thinking about, but, uh, you know, if... Um, if Roger could, in fact, talk, he'd probably be kind of like this. How am I doing? How am I doing? Am I okay? Am I okay? How am I doing? Hey, see those trees up there? I'd really like to have one of those. How am I doing? You know, and uh, 
Anyway, you give them one of those treats, you know, those beef sticks that cost 49 cents a piece, and, uh, you know, and he goes and he lays down on the very expensive oriental carpet, and he eats it, and then he's back in about five and a half seconds, and it's like, how am I doing now? Am I still okay? Am I still okay? Can I have one of those treats? You know, whereas cats, who are my personal favorite house pet, <laughs> cats are like this. You know how cats are? <laughs> I try not to swear, but I assume hand gestures are okay. Anyway, um, actually, when I was new, the words that I thought were dirty were not the kind of words that people think are dirty now. I, I thought words like job, you know, <laughs> responsibility, commitment. Those were words that I thought were dirty. But anyway, you know, that's what cats are like. You know, they're like, we're the cats. We don't care, and we hate the dog. And uh, anyway, um, the analogy that I came up with is that I've always been a dog. There's no getting around it. I'm a big old dog. I mean, I've always been a dog. As the years went on and life became more painful for me, I desperately wanted to be a cat. You know, but I've never been a cat. I've always been a dog. So the best that I could come up with is I became a dog who walked around in a little cat suit. <laughs> little fur jacket. And uh, what that meant was that I desperately cared what you thought about me, but I walked around like this. <laughs> and that's what I brought to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, needless to say, I was not a vision for you <laughs> or a cuddly newcomer, okay? Anyway, I started to drink when I was about 12 years old, and I gotta tell you, it was none too soon. <laughs> I heard a guy say, I could have used a drink in kindergarten, and I thought, oh, yeah, would have made first grade a lot easier. Anyway, um, and as I heard my friend Charlie Carney say, the only invisible line I ever crossed was my lips. You know, I, uh, I'm lucky. I discovered what alcohol was for immediately. I didn't mess around having, like, pink cosmopolitans. What are those things anyway? You know, but, I mean, I didn't mess around having cocktails. I don't know that I ever actually had a cocktail. I started out drinking things like Red Mountain Wine and Ripple and uh, Mad Dog 2020, you know, the kind of wine that my friend Don Norman describes as coming in and hovering over a grape but never quite coming in for a landing, you know, that kind of wine. <laughs> I'm a screw top girl, and uh, you know, and that's really a good thing because I've never been that good with mechanical things. And uh, you know, later on, basically, basically, I'm a cheap wine and downer kind of girl. Okay, so what that means is I like to drink really cheap wine. I like to take medication intended for sleep, and I like to sit in the corner and drool. And. Um, <laughs> And when I'm not doing that, I'm operating a motor vehicle. And, um, I'd like to tell you I'm kidding, but I'm not. Um, my idea of driving is, if you can crawl to the car, hoist yourself up by the steering wheel, get in, somehow manage to get the key in the ignition, you're driving. <laughs> You're driving, and in my case, you're driving in the canyon roads through the mountains of Los Angeles, and um, because there were some places I like to hang out, there was a particularly sordid bar at the top of Topanga Canyon, a place called the Corral, and um, my brother's friends had a band, and if I could manage to navigate my way up there, I could get all the free beer I wanted, and uh, that was enough reason for me to drive 40 miles each way. <laughs> anyway... Um, Basically, basically, I'm just, I'm a drunk. I grew up during the 60s. Uh, the 60s were a great generation for somebody like me because it was the first generation before or since that said, get as screwed up as you want to. It is the preferable way to live. You know, and, uh, you know, and you didn't have to do much in the 60s. You didn't have to do much in the 60s. You didn't have to do much in the early 70s. I have a friend named Tracy, and uh, Tracy got sober the year before I did, and she had great answers to the 20 questions, you know. Is drinking affecting your job? What job? You know, is, uh, 
Is drinking affecting your home life? What home? I once lived in a house with like nine other people. I had my own room for $29 a month, and I was having trouble making that. Um, you know, is drinking affecting your reputation? To which she responded, drinking is my reputation. And, uh, you know, there was something to be said for being a woman who was loud and rowdy and able to drink big men under the table. I'm not sure why I was proud of that, but boy, I really was. And... Uh, you know, and I don't remember, the truth of the matter is, there's two things in Alcoholics Anonymous that I didn't identify with when I came here. The first was, I really rarely ever had a conscious obsession to drink, but that's only because I never had a life that was set up where I had to wait till like five to have cocktails. I had a life that was set up that if I wanted to drink, I just drank, and it didn't matter what I was supposed to be doing. I just drank. So I was rarely aware of a conscious obsession to drink, and there was always something or somebody or some drugs or some alcohol, but there was always something. And the other thing I never identified with was that first paragraph of Chapter 3, where it says most of us were unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. I mean, it wasn't like I was unwilling to admit it. I had no idea what an alcoholic was. But most of us are unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily or mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers are characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. I never wanted to drink like other people. I wanted to drink like you people. And what I wanted was for other people to leave me alone so I could drink the way that I wanted to. But I never wanted to drink like other people. You know, all of that stuff that's come out lately, and I know it's sort of an outside issue, I don't really, but about moderation management and, and social drinking and controlling your drinking if you're an alcoholic or whatever any of that stuff is, I cannot even wrap my gray matter around the concept of moderation. I just can't do that. I don't know how to do that. I never wanted to drink socially. I always wanted to be intoxicated, inebriated, blasted. I always wanted to drink to that state. That was why I drank, because I loved the effect produced by alcohol. And for me, in order to get the desired effect, I didn't want to be here. Now, I don't know what it was about life that I found so painful that I wanted to drink to the point where I just wasn't here anymore. But you know what? I don't, I don't spend a lot of time trying to unravel the mystery of me. You know what I mean? I mean, about that kind of thing. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I remember my father saying to me a few years ago, he said, it hasn't been easy for you, has it, babe? And I said, no, it hasn't. And I don't say that with self-pity. I mean, I don't really have a lot of self-pity. Every once in a while, I feel sorry for myself, and I just go ahead and do it, you know? I figure, if I don't feel sorry for myself, who will, you know? I mean... <laughs> You guys aren't going to feel sorry for me because if you're in that place, you're not going to waste the energy on me. You're going to feel sorry for yourself, you know. I mean. But I don't feel sorry for myself. It's just a reality. You know, I've never been the kind of person who's been able to move through life like a hot knife through cold butter. I'm just not that kind of a person. And I used to resent the amount of assistance that I seemed to need to get through a day. And now I'm like, bring it on. You know, maybe it's a function of age. I don't have any idea. I'm going to be 50 on my next birthday. Looking good. <laughs> I'm an age I never thought I would be. <laughs> it's shocking to me. Anyway, uh, you know, you just wake up one day and you're 50. <laughs> Who would have thought? Anyway, um, what was I talking about? See, that's also fun. Oh, I know. Uh, and I, I'm just going to jump around. Just feel free to follow me if you can. Um, <laughs> this is not a linear story. This is just whatever Eileen happens to think of at the moment, you know? Not all my synapses fire at the same time. <laughs> because I took a lot of acid. What can I say? Anyway... <laughs> But I'm back. Uh, <laughs> I spoke at a meeting once. You know, I do rather unorthodox things. You haven't seen my back, but I have a huge tattoo. Anyway, I, um, 
several years ago, Carol Skillen remembers this because she was down in Arkansas. My hair was black, but it had very chunky, dark blue streaks in it. Actually, I, I think I caused um, irreparable damage to some old boy in the parking lot of Walmart. But, uh, you know, he, uh, he got out of his truck, and I'm standing in the parking lot of Walmart in Little Rock, Arkansas, and he's like, I mean, he just couldn't believe it. And finally, I just said to him, I said, listen, I said, don't worry about it. I said, I'm from California, and I'm going back. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I spoke at a meeting, and it was upstairs in this office building in L.A., and there were like flies buzzing around the lectern for, I hope they weren't there for me, but uh, anyway, um, and my hair was blue, so I said, if you're new, my hair is blue, and the flies are real. Uh, (laughs) I just wanted to make sure they knew that and didn't go running screaming out of the room. Anyhow... um, well, I have to say, I was kind of a bulletproof newcomer. You know, people are always saying, oh, be careful what you say in front of the newcomer. I mean, it was like, I don't remember anything, anybody saying anything bad enough to drive me out of AA. I was so thrilled with everything everybody had to say, really. Anyway, um, you know, so uh, back in 1987, uh, I was in Israel. I had gone to Israel to work. Um, I um, was working for somebody else at that time, and I was also an assistant. And I had gone to Israel. My then employer was making a movie in Israel. And one night, her brother had come over with his girlfriend, and her brother happens to be a Christian. And one night, we were having a conversation about God. And Todd said to me, you know, people say to me, Jesus is a crutch. And I respond to them, if Jesus is a crutch, let him be a stretcher. I'll just lay down and let him carry me. Now... I'm Jewish, so I don't have quite the same view, but I feel that way about Alcoholics Anonymous. People say AA is a crutch. You know, people all the time say, are you still going to those meetings? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I am. Um, I go to meetings for four separate and distinct reasons. I go to meetings because I need them. I'm not embarrassed to admit that I need to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is rarely ever anymore that I'm in such a crisis state that I need to run to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. But you know what? Sometimes I still do. I go to a little discussion meeting that's half a block from my house. It's in the basement of this. I live in this high-rise community, and there's a little meeting in the basement. Uh, and it's, it's become a favorite meeting of mine. And I can walk over there, you know, with my keys and my seventh tradition, like practically in my pajamas. So I love this meeting. And... Uh, Anyway, I go over there, and, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the L.A. traffic just really got to me. I mean, one person too many had flipped me off. And, um, you know, and I just needed to go to a meeting. And, uh, and when I got there, I said why I was there. I just needed to go to a meeting. And, uh, you know, I go to uh, three or four meetings a week, sometimes five. Sometimes six. It just all depends. I'm really in love with going to meetings again. I mean, I've never not loved going to meetings, but I'm in a particular phase of loving going to meetings. I just love meetings. I go to meetings because I like them. Because in the last 25 years, I've become a pretty interesting person. You know, uh, I can go to a non-AA party and never once even mention that I'm in AA. I can talk about books I've actually read, movies I've actually seen. Politics, you know, whatever. I can tell. I don't have to mention I'm in AA. But all of my friends that I am closest to, all of the people who are my closest and dearest friends, are all members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they all feel as passionately about this program as I do. The third reason why I go to meetings is because it's my sponsor, Julie C., the great white goddess, she who must be obeyed, <laughs> says. That's where they keep the newcomers. (laughs) Not being in the habit of going to bars, I find my newcomers here. Is Brian here, by the way, my new favorite newcomer? Where's Brian from Florida? Is he here? Oh. Oh, he's in trouble now. Peg and I are going to hunt him down. Yay! All right, Brian. Peggy and I have discovered Brian, and we're not going to let him live. Um, (laughs) We're going to keep him in our sights all weekend. Anyway, um, so glad you're here. You know, and I've never felt that the point of AA, I mean, a lot of people that I know, a lot of my peers no longer go to meetings, and they go, well, I'm fine. And it's kind of like, I got mine. 
And I've never felt the point of AA is to get yours and split. The point of AA is to get yours and give it back to somebody else. That's the point of alcoholics. Because nothing has saved my life more than being of service. For me, the 11th step is irrevocably linked with the 12th step. They are irrevocably linked because I'm not the best prayer or meditator I've ever met. I'm just not as good at it as some people are. But I'm a good spiritual activist. And all spiritual activism means to me is being of service. That every single one of us in this room has the opportunity to be a spiritual activist. Because the act of helping somebody else for fun and for free, the act of sharing your experience, strength, and hope with another alcoholic or anybody else is a spiritual act. Every time I practice the 10th step in my business, it's a spiritual act. Every time I mouth off to someone on the telephone and call them back and say, you know what, I'm having a bad day and I had no right to take it out on you, that's a spiritual act. You know, this program affords me opportunities to be a spiritual activist. The two spiritual figures that I have admired most in my life were Mother Teresa of Calcutta and the Dalai Lama of Tibet. And the reason why I admire both of those figures is because their entire lives were and are about service. And I don't claim to be anything like those people. You know, no one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles, meaning that none of us have come close. We're not saints, but the point is that we're willing to grow along spiritual lines, and that's been the case for me. I am not by nature a spiritual person. I am by nature a cynic and a miserable malcontent and a really negative person. I mean, that's who I am by nature. And yet, because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and because of the brilliance of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, particularly for me, the appendix in the back, the spiritual experience, all they talk about in those two pages in the back of our book is a change of attitude. That's all those two pages are talking about, in my opinion, is a change of attitude. And I don't even know when that took place, but they used to say around here that you cannot think yourself into right action, but you can act yourself into right thinking. And I am an absolute amazing example of someone who acted themselves into right thinking because I didn't come here with good motives. I didn't come here because I wanted to give it the old college try and get sober. I came here because I was tired. That's why I came here, and I was hostile and frightened and scared to death, and Alcoholics Anonymous worked for me anyway. I drank and used for a total of 12 years. During that time, nothing huge and spectacular happened, just a lot of small incidents, one after the other, after the other, after the other, that almost completely eroded my soul away. That's, I think, what happens to a lot of us. I am no stranger to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I am no stranger to absolute degradation. But the beauty of God's grace is that I didn't even realize how bad it was for me until I'd been sober about three years because as things became more incomprehensible, I just swallowed more. And I just lowered my standards and lowered my standards and lowered my standards until I got to the point where I just simply could not afford to care anymore and didn't care anymore. And alcohol enabled me to live the way that I lived. That is the only reason why I could live the way I lived was because of alcohol. And I have to tell you, it wasn't the physical effects of alcohol that was killing me when I got here at age 23. It was the effects of the way that I had to live in order to keep drinking. You know, I would do anything, as my friend Kawanga says, for a drink or the promise of a drink. I would do anything. And, uh, and I did. And I think about my life and I think about the grace of God because I think about how all of us, every time we got into a car to drive drunk, every time we went home with a stranger from a bar, I mean, there were things that happened. I don't need to go into them in detail, but I have to tell you that things happened to me that would have sent normal women to the nut house. I would get up to the next morning and go to the beach as though nothing had happened because I was such a piece of crap. 
You don't go to the hospital. You don't call the police. You don't do anything. You just pretend it didn't happen, you know? And that was how I lived. Anyway, I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. AA wasn't much in the press like it is now back in 1974. There were certainly not a lot of young people coming to AA in 1974. I was watching television one night, and late at night, a public service announcement came on television about Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think I'd ever heard of it before. There was alcoholism in my family. My mother's father was an alcoholic. Her brother was an alcoholic. My father's sister was an alcoholic, and she committed suicide 17 years ago. And I had the opportunity. This was the weirdest thing in the world. My Aunt Shirley lived in Mount Vernon, New York, and after her husband died, my father and his then-remaining brothers moved her out to Los Angeles, which is when we found out what a terrible drunk she was. She had been drinking for about 50 years, and I guess her husband had been picking her up off the floor and putting her to bed. And after he died, they moved her out, and she lived in a little single apartment on Hollywood Boulevard, a real drunk's apartment, you know, like with one pound suit and one towel and overflowing ashtrays and, you know, half-empty, half-gallons of cheap whiskey and beer cans and, you know. And I didn't have much to do with her because she was belligerent towards me and she didn't like me, and I, I tried to 12-step her a couple of times, and, you know. Anyway, she tried to kill herself about five times, and they were all serious attempts, and the final time, she uh, drank and took pills and put a plastic bag over her head, and she succeeded. And uh, I was on my way to my friend Cubby's 15th AA birthday party, and I stopped at my parents to say hello, and I was there when my dad got the call. So we took a ride into Hollywood to her apartment, and my dad was standing in the middle of her apartment. Now, my father was nine years younger than the rest of his seven brothers and sisters. His mother had been killed in an accident when he was 10. Many of his brothers and sisters have died under tragic circumstances. My father, who's the sweetest, dearest man in the world, standing in the middle of my aunt's apartment crying and saying, look at this shit. This, look, this is what's left of some 70-odd years of life. Now, I have to tell you, that's a sad end to the story, but what's even sadder is when they celebrated the when they when they... Um, the will went through probate and they were able to get the money. My father got far less than his two other needier brothers and he got $80,000. She didn't have to live that way. And see, I think that's how alcoholics die. And so I got here when I was 24 years old and I was spared that. I don't think it's the big car crashes. I think it's the way my aunt Shirley died. 50 years of drinking, couldn't take it anymore, took pills, drank, put a plastic bag over her head. Anyway, um, I saw this public service announcement on uh, late night TV, and I knew that I drank too much. I had known that I drank too much for a long time. So what? Everybody I knew drank too much. But my life was such a shambles that I thought, you know what, I'm going to try this thing. So I called. They offered to send somebody. I said, no, I'll, I'll get to the meeting. I did have a car. And I got to the meeting. Now, I went to meetings. It was either in July or August of 1974. I don't really remember. I went to meetings for about five months. I did not get sober in those five months. I didn't get a big book. I didn't get a sponsor. I leaned against walls in meetings in Hollywood. I glared at people. I dared them to come near me. Most of them didn't. Um, let me just say what I looked like when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I weighed 230 pounds. I was wearing a 599 granny dress from one of our better discount department stores. I was wearing a pair of Zoris. Um, I had a really bad haircut that I think I had performed on myself. And, uh, and personal hygiene was spotty at best. And uh, anyway, I, um, and I glared. And, uh, and there were a couple of really mean guys in Hollywood AA. Clint probably remembers Irving Nimi, who was a retired longshoreman from New York. Irving was really loud. He'd get up to talk in AA, and he'd push the microphone aside, and he'd say, I don't need this thing. And you would think, yeah, Irv, I'm, I'm sure you don't. Anyway, um, <laughs> anyhow, uh, Irving uh, liked me for some unknown reason. And, uh, and there were a couple of other really mean guys who saw through my facade, and they were very kind to me, but it wasn't enough because I wasn't ready to stop drinking. And if you're not ready to stop drinking, it's pretty hard to get sober. I didn't have an honest desire. I didn't have an, any desire to get sober, and so I didn't. And when the holidays rolled around in 1974, I thought to myself, there's certainly no point in sticking around this outfit, and I left. Now... I had this therapist. I did have a therapist. His name was Sid. Sid was blind, and Sid and I used to smoke dope and neck during my sessions. And, um, (laughs) 
Needless to say, I was getting a lot of help from Sid. <laughs> anyway, Sid invited me to go. Um, the Unitarians, I don't know what you know about Unitarians, a very liberal bunch. And uh, the Unitarians own a church camp in the San Bernardino Mountains in, uh, in California called the Benneville Pines. And they were having a New Year's Eve weekend. And Sid asked me if I'd like to go, and I finally agreed after Sid assured me that there would be a lot of liquor, because I wasn't going if there wasn't a lot of liquor. And sure enough, we got there, and they were unloading large gallon jugs of some particular fabulous vintage out of the back of a station wagon. Anyway, I spent that last New Year's Eve weekend that I ever drank um, completely inebriated. I ended up having a three-way with two sex therapists from Carpinteria. I can still remember their names, Bert and Sally. Um, I uh, stumbled around in the snow wearing not enough clothing and got pneumonia. It was a great weekend. And um, I had some vague plan to come back after the first of the year, but the pneumonia problem sort of, de you know, sort of delayed that. And so my birthday is March 3rd. So it took me a couple of months longer to get back to AA than I had originally planned. But then again, most things didn't work out the way I planned them. Um, I have to tell you that one of the things about being sober that I still get the biggest kick out of after 25 years of sobriety is that my word means something. If I tell you I'm going to be there, I show up. I show up on time. And if I can't be there or I'm going to be late, I call you and I let you know. I told Dick and Peggy that I would be here a long time ago. Not only, not only did I show up here, I showed up at the airport on time. I had my ticket with me. I packed my luggage. They got it here. I love Midwest Express. Anyway, um, I have a luggage problem. <laughs> you know, and I showed up and I did what I said I was going to do and I still get the biggest kick of, you know, in the pants out of that. Anyway, um, I came back on March 3rd of 1975. I wouldn't have given you two nickels that I would have stayed sober. I came back for two reasons. I came back because I was tired, and I came back because of something that I had gotten the year before. And it wasn't a conscious thing, but it was something that I had gotten the year before. I remember looking at Alcoholics Anonymous, and I remember thinking AA is good, it's decent, it's unhip. People seem to be nice to one another here. And I thought that if I could let down enough of my guard to let you know that I really wanted what you had instead of what I had, that this was the first place in years that nobody would laugh at me. I remember when I was in high school, and I wanted to go to the senior prom, but I was already the kind of girl that nobody asked to the senior prom. And that was back in 1968 when the prom was still important. And uh, nobody asked me, so of course I got loaded the night of the prom and made fun of everybody who went to the prom. But of course I wanted to be one of those girls in one of those beautiful gowns, but I wasn't one of those girls. And I remember when I was five years sober, I had a friend named Richard Arthur, and he was the first man in Alcoholics Anonymous that I knew who died of AIDS. And Richard had bought me one of those huge, he said, he said to me, get over here. He says, I have your birthday present. And he, uh, he bought me one of those big Cymbidium orchid plants. And he said to me, this is your corsage, because you never went to the prom. And I have to tell you, a friend of mine used to describe the way he came to Alcoholics Anonymous. He said he was so cool, he was frozen. And I identify with that. And what I have done in the last 25 years is I've been thawing out, you know. And I am really thawed now, you know, I'm very thawed, and, uh, you know, and things affect me, and things move me, and everything makes me cry, and, you know, and, and I love it, I love it, because I'm somebody who spent my entire life running away from my feelings, and I honestly thought that when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, my feelings would skid to a halt, and God would say, leave her alone, she's had enough, you know, and, uh, Boy, was that a fallacy, you know. This friend of mine used to say, a festival of feelings is just waiting to fall on your head, you know. But fortunately, they don't all fall at the same time. You know. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I've started, for some reason, I've started laughing like that. I feel like I'm, ch I'm channeling Chuck C. Anyway, I, um... anyway, I don't know. Anyhow, uh... Somebody might as well, you know. 
<laughs> I did know him. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> so I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I came back on March 3rd. On March 4th, the single most important thing that's ever happened to me happened to me that day. I went to a meeting at a clubhouse in North Hollywood called Radford, and the man who became my first sponsor took five seconds out of his day to affect the course of my life. If you don't think that what you do has any effect on the newcomer, think again. I was at Radford. This man had known me the year before. He had seen me around. He backed me up against the wall in that clubhouse, and he said to me, Look, punk. He said, You have a serious problem with alcohol and drugs, and you better damn well get sober or you're going to die. And he backed it up by saying to me, And if you don't get sober, I'm going to break your jaw. Now, they weren't very cuddly back in those days. They just said what they meant. And, uh, you know, and I don't know what you would have thought, but I thought he cares. You know, I'd heard you cared. But I couldn't accept it at face value. I wanted to know why. And I remember about a month later calling him up on the phone because I couldn't stand it anymore. And I screamed at him, why do you care about me? Why do you care about me? And he screamed back at me, because you're a psycho. <laughs> and I thought, okay. All right, I can accept that. <laughs> anyway, I took his phone number. Now, people had given me hundreds of phone numbers. You know how when you're new and they come at you with their teeth bared and they have little slips of paper and they say, call me. And it's like, oh, yeah, right. You know, because uh, I had pockets full of phone numbers in 1974, which I would empty as soon as I got home. And I would throw them all away because I wasn't going to call any of you. Because what was I going to say to you when I called you? You weren't going to remember me anyway. What was I going to say to you? But I called him. That was a miracle, but what was even a greater miracle is I called him the second time. Because the first time I called him, completely unsolicited by me, he started telling me what to do. Can you imagine that? I don't like people telling me what to do. I really don't. You tell me to do something, I want to do the opposite. I met Peggy in Sacramento, California at a roundup. At their roundup, they have a cake in the back of the room for all the birthdays that's the size of the Husker Memorial Stadium. <laughs> it's the size of a football field. And they had a sign, I swear I remember this. I don't, I don't know if I'm making this up, but I think it's true. A sign that says, don't molest the cake. <laughs> well, you know, I want to do a snow angel in the cake. <laughs> Don't tell me not to touch it. I don't want to just stick my finger in the corner. I want to, like, fling myself on the cake. The beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous is I don't do that anymore. But I want to. Now, the things that he told me to do were this. He told me that I had to go to seven to nine meetings a week. He told me that I had to um, sit in the front row. I had to uh, take care of my chair and my ashtray and my cup. I had to thank speakers whether I thought they had anything to say or not. He told me that I had to get a big book and a commitment and that I was essentially useless, but I had a car and I could drive other people to meetings. <laughs> right. Anyway, I tried to explain to him that this would be impossible. Um, I couldn't do that because I couldn't put a stranger in my car and drive them to the meeting because what were we going to talk about? And he said to me that he didn't really care. That I should put the person in the car and I should point the car in the direction of the meeting and there was a very good chance that both of us would make it there. And um, I couldn't argue with that. I couldn't argue with that. My first commitment in Alcoholics Anonymous was greeting at the door of a meeting called Wilshire Normandy. It was then the biggest meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous in Los Angeles. It was on Sunday nights. It was at the corner of Wilshire and Normandy. That's why it was named that. Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> A friend of mine gave me a meeting directory from 1966, and I thought I'd thumb through and find some interesting meeting names. My personal favorite? The No Donut Group in Pomona. <laughs> Can you imagine this? A bunch of humorless old farts sitting around going, we're not going to have our meeting adulterated by pastry. Oh, no. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we're not even going to have any coffee, nothing to take away from the message. <laughs> The no donut group. Okay. Anyway, 
My job at Wilshire Normandy was being a greeter. Now, I was a hostile greeter. <laughs> you came to Wilshire, you got greeted whether you wanted to be or not. And if you tried to sneak around the other way, we would intercept you and make sure you got greeted. Now, I came to AA with no life. It's a really good way to get here because then you have nothing to do but go to meetings. So I would get there an hour and a half early because I had a particular place that I like to stand by the door and I would put my keys on the floor <laughs> to save my place. And God, help you if you stood there because it was my place. And people started to get to know me in Hollywood. They knew me as the bitch at the door of Wilshire. <laughs> But they knew me. And they actually started inviting me to coffee after the meeting. I spent the first five years of my sobriety in Piper's Coffee Shop on Western Avenue, eating Welsh rarebit and smoking cigarettes and talking and drinking coffee and getting to know the people of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I went to live on that commune in Washington in 1970, I remember I wrote my parents a letter because I ran away from home. And I wrote them a letter and I said, I'm finally with the beautiful people, the ones who really understand me. I wish my mother had saved that letter, but the truth of the matter is it isn't until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that I found the beautiful people, the ones who really understood me, see. Because I was always trying to find out what was wrong with me. I knew there was something wrong with me. I had always known there was something wrong with me, and everybody else told me there was something wrong with me. Because I'm one of those people who should have made it. I was born with everything you were supposed to have in order to make it. I was born with looks and talent and brains and opportunity and a supportive family. And by the time I was 23 years old, I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. Why? Because I have the disease of alcoholism. And alcoholism doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care if you are young or old or black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Christian or Jewish or Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist. It doesn't care if you're gay or straight. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care if you are rich or poor. It doesn't care. If you've got alcoholism, you've got it. And I've got it. And because of that, I had to live my life in a way that was dictated by my alcoholism and my drinking of alcohol. I had to live my life that way. There was no other way for me to live so long as I was drinking. There are people who come here having accumulated the trappings of life, you know, like wives and husbands and lovers and cars and dogs and boats and ducks and college careers and you know and 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 degrees and all of those things and they do them while drinking and i believe that you're alcoholic i've heard your stories the only thing that i don't understand is how did you do it because i'm one of those people who either drinks or has a life i don't do both i drink or i have a life I didn't get my life back in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got my life in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have a great life. I have a great life. I don't have some of the things that I thought that I wanted. You know, my sponsor says there is no such thing as AA voodoo. You know, that if you go on 87 12-step calls and secretary and go speak here and do that, that that equals a boyfriend or a job or a car. It doesn't. It doesn't. If my sobriety was contingent on all of the things that I thought that I needed in order to stay sober, I would have been drunk on the second day. A friend of mine says we stay sober with no reservations. I cannot have reservations saying, okay, I'll stay sober until, you know, I get that. Or I stay sober until that gets taken away or whatever because I don't know anybody who has stayed sober any length of time on whom the universe has not intervened, okay? I mean, there are some people who have some sort of false notion, in my opinion, that if you stay sober long enough, you'll get everything into a nice, neat little package and nothing else will ever intervene to upset the apple cart. I have news for you. God flings what I call celestial monkey wrenches into the mix... <laughs> just to see if we're paying attention. <laughs> I got a whopper 
about four years ago. Fourth of July, 1996, I am sitting on my couch. It's about 9.30 in the morning. I'm having a large cup of java trying to get my heart started. <laughs> I am looking out the window at my view. I am thinking that I have four days ahead of me where I don't have to go to work. I am as happy as a little clam. I'm thinking that eventually I'll get off my butt and go to the store and get the stuff for the salad I promised to bring to the barbecue later that afternoon and my telephone rang and my life changed. It was a woman. She said, my name is Julie Jones. I'm a, I'm a private search investigator from Seattle, Washington, and I've been asked to locate you. I had no idea why she was calling. She said, is your name Eileen Waterstone? And I said, yes. And she said, does the date March 28, 1969 mean anything to you? And then I knew. Because on March 28, 1969, I had given birth to a son. I had given him up for adoption. I had made the decision years before that I was not going to search. And yet, he had come 27 years later to find me. I started to cry. I said, is he in Seattle? She said, oh no, he's in your area code. We do this by computer. My son was living a mile and a half away from me 27 years later. She said to me, can I give him your phone number? I said, oh no. I said, uh, call him back. Give me his, call him back, tell him, I'll call him in a little while as soon as I can catch my breath. Tell him I'm really happy about this, but I just need to catch my breath. I got off the phone. My stomach was on the carpet. I got off the phone. I called my sponsor who was home, thank God. I called my parents who were not home, thank God. <laughs> I called a couple of friends. I called a couple of friends who had adopted children. I got their blessing. I took a deep breath. I said a little prayer. I dialed the number. And I said to him, my name is Eileen Waterstone, and I understand you're looking for me. In our first conversation, he told me, He'd been in a rehab. <laughs> now, amazingly enough, I hadn't told him anything about myself yet. <laughs> I've always wondered why he told me that. You know, I've never asked him. I guess he was either telling me the worst thing about himself, so I could reject him right away, or he was trying to impress me. Now, I have to tell you, neither approach worked. And I thought, oh, what the hell? So I said, gee, I said, what a coincidence. <laughs> I said, I've been in AA for 21 years. Now, he'd been out of the rehab for about two years drinking at that point, and so I just know that he's on the other end of the line going, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, God, she knows, you know. <laughs> I don't know that this was good news right off the bat, you know. Anyway, I arranged to meet him two days later. Except for the fact that he's six foot three, half Mexican, and a guy, we look exactly alike. And, um, right, Luther? We look exactly alike. He's this big hunk of bunk guy. I mean, he's really gorgeous. You know, there's no getting around him. And he's an alcoholic. Um, he got sober briefly. He's no longer sober. But you know what? We have a relationship. My sponsor has two alcoholic children. One is sober 10 years, the other was sober 16 and went out using the same drug that my son is using currently, and now she's back. And she's going to Al-Anon, so I don't have to, but, you know, time is running out for me. But uh, anyway, I'll be joining you soon. Um, but I've been pretty good about keeping my big mouth shut. I really have. And uh, you know what? My parents were afraid. They didn't know what he wanted. And here's how things have progressed in the last four years because I didn't tell anybody that they had to do anything. I met him in, March of, in July of 96. I met his parents in March of 97. My parents did not meet him until March of 98. And I didn't make them meet him. I didn't make them do anything. But because I like a lot of drama, I had them all come to my home group 
to give me a cake for my 23rd AA birthday and meet for the first time. I thought that would be good. <laughs> and it was very emotional, and they met, and, you know, they were a little overcome by how good-looking he was. And uh, anyway, and, you know, he had gotten sober at that point. My mother said that, you know, she didn't want to meet him when he was drinking and using. She said, you know what, I, I went through this with you, and we're too old, and I just can't do it again. But he got sober, and they met him, and now they have a relationship with him. They don't know that he's currently using what he's using, and I haven't told them it's not my business. But they have a relationship with him. It's gotten to the point now that my mother has now told all of her friends about him. It's a huge secret in the 60s. She's shown pictures of her new 31-year-old grandson. <laughs> See, my mother carries pictures of her grandchildren. I can't believe it. He doesn't have pictures of his grandchildren. He's bragging, and then there are no pictures to prove it. I claim he's too young. Anyway. <laughs> and I have this son in my life. And the most beautiful thing about the story is who he found on the other end of the line. Because, see, I think he scored. He scored because of Alcoholics Anonymous. He couldn't have found anybody better than me because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've shared this story a lot since it's happened because it's a big deal. And I've had people come up to me and I say, I found my mom and she's drunk, or I found my mom and she doesn't want to meet me, or I found my mom and it's too late, she's dead. And then there are others who have had a good experience like mine, but most of the experiences that I've heard have not been as positive as ours. You know, and I've always been truthful with him. You know, I've always tried to tell him the truth. I've been open. I've talked to him about anything he wanted to talk to me about. And it's an experience that I never thought that I would have. You know, I never had any other kids, and I'm not going to have any other kids. And you know what? I've been able to have this experience because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, last year, like I said, my dad had cancer. And I have to tell you, you know, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was able to be there for my parents. They live in L.A. My brother lives in Tucson. I'm really the only one who's there for them. And I have to tell you a story, and then I'm going to sit down, because it's so amazing to me how Alcoholics Anonymous can, you know, break patterns in families. My mother is a very stoic woman and a secret keeper. She's the daughter of an alcoholic, and you know what? I never knew that their father was an alcoholic. He died before I was born. My aunt, who was in AA for about five years, is the one who told me that their father was an alcoholic. My mother is very stoic. If there's something bad going on, she doesn't want to talk about it. She wants to change the subject. She's very, very stoic. And uh, when my dad got cancer, it was really hard. My dad is almost 79. He's never been sick. You know, and all of a sudden we found out that we weren't sure, you know, but he'd had these tests and they found something on his colon and they were fairly certain it was cancer and he was going to have surgery. And I said to my mother, he was going to be in the hospital for five days, and I called up my mother and I said, I don't want any arguments from you because I know what she's like. I said, here's the way it's going to be, Ma. I said, I'm moving in with you when Daddy's in the hospital. And I said, and I'm going to drive you back and forth, and I'm going to do whatever it is that you need me to do, and that's the way it is, and just forget about it. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I could hear her start to say something, and then she stopped, and she said, that would be really nice. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, the two hardest things that I had to learn how to say were, I don't know, and will you help me? Because when you have a lot of intellectual pretension and a lot of false pride, it's hard to ask anybody for any help. And when the people in Alcoholics Anonymous wanted to help me, it was really, really hard for me to let them. And it was really, really hard for me to be here and admit that I wanted to be here because I didn't think I deserved it. I didn't want to say that I wanted it because then it would be snatched away from me. But I have to tell you, like my mother was secretly thrilled, secretly thrilled, that I was going to step in and take over, I was secretly thrilled that Alcoholics Anonymous was going to take over the shambles that had become my life. I really wanted to turn myself over to Alcoholics Anonymous. I really did. And, uh, you know, it didn't show on the outside, but on the inside. You know, I used to have a friend who used to say, you know, we don't get here because there's nothing left. We get here because there's something left. And it may be a little tiny flame. And then the love and the power of Alcoholics Anonymous and the loving God that exists in all the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, all of that fans that little tiny flame until it becomes a huge bonfire. I have a bonfire in my soul today 
I believe in Alcoholics Anonymous. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love what Alcoholics Anonymous has done in your lives, and I love what Alcoholics Anonymous has done in my life. It says in our book that when all else fails, help another alcoholic. I really hope that I've done that tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you.